This, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Amanda Delheimer. So there's this meme going around the internet recently. I'm a little embarrassed to say this, but it's from the cartoon SpongeBob SquarePants. Anyways, SpongeBob is holding his daily schedule, which reads 8 a.m. Wake up Patrick, 9 a.m. Eat Kelpo with Patrick, 10 a.m. Brush teeth with Patrick, and so on. It's funny, but as with all memes, there's also some truth there. I mean, do you know that feeling? The I always want to do everything with that person feeling? Or do you remember the first person that you were obsessed with? Like so much so that you were almost connected at the hip? In a story about that peculiar joyful intensity, Second Story is proud to present a story by Jesse Lauren Smith. I really need to leave my dorm room, but I can't because I'm having a problem with my pants. I'm 19, a sophomore in college, and I go to a real small school outside of Boston, but I haven't really found my people yet, you know, so there's no one who can tell me if these pants, which have a complete Union Jack hand-painted across the front, make me look cool or insane, (laughs) which is a problem because I recently been elected to the Campus Events Council. Now, I'm not sure why I talked my way into this job when I'm afraid of strangers and new situations and large crowds such as one might find at an event. (laughs) But I did, I did do that, and so now I have to be at the quad in five minutes to help throw a back-to-school luau. I look at my reflection, (sighs) whatever. I make it to the quad, and the president of the Campus Events Council immediately drags me over to meet Audrey, a transfer student who is also on CEC this year. Audrey's wearing turquoise eyeliner and no other makeup, so I figure she must be cool but she's also making cotton candy, which means she's covered in a thin layer of sticky blue stuff. So I can speak to her. (laughs) I love your pants, she says, and she smiles at me more genuinely than I think I've been smiled at in years, and I instantly love her. A month later, it's 1 a.m., and we are in the CEC offices making posters for the Golden Goose All-Male Talent Show. Well, Audrey's making them. We quickly found out that my handwriting on these posters makes them look like large ransom notes. (laughs) How's Eric, she asks after a while. I hesitate and go for honesty because hedging isn't really in my wheelhouse anyway. Uh, pretty much terrible, I say. He broke up with me and started trying to date someone who lives in my house. What, she says. Yeah, I say. We go back and forth mostly just saying those two things for a while. My head is lifting up for the first time in months, though, because it is such a relief to finally talk to someone who is not already friends with Eric, somebody who's allowed to just totally hate him in a way that even I'm not. About an hour and a half later, we run out of ways to say that Eric sucks, and there's a pause while we draw stars unevenly onto posters. Then Audrey says, Nat and I aren't friends anymore. I know Nat, kind of. Nat is a costume designer, a senior, stoic and intimidating, and I've seen her around because Audrey used to bring her to everything. I realize suddenly that I haven't seen them together for a while and that maybe I should have wondered why she wasn't here sitting in the corner while Audrey made these posters. It was over a boy, Audrey says. She sounds casual, but I know loneliness when I see it. 
And I decide that maybe it's okay if I love her because maybe she needs someone too. We spend every remaining day of sophomore year together. We make things, we go to shows, we hate the same people. We are insanely overscheduled, but if anyone asks me at any given moment where Audrey is, I can tell them and vice versa. Audrey asked me to write a play that she can direct and that changes the course of my whole life. I'm quieter than her, but she falls overlapping at things I say and she takes my opinions really seriously and I start to think that maybe I might be funny and I might be wise, but there's still some limits to what I feel like I can say. We drive around all night talking and looking for the beach, which is surprisingly hard to find. She's smoking, and I'm staring out the open window, holding the lit cigarette that she put in my hands. Eric visited campus last weekend. I avoided him, and I hid under Audrey's loft bed every night. We haven't really talked about it. Is he a good kisser? Audrey asked suddenly. Yeah, I say. That was part of the problem. Are you a good kisser? She asks. I'm glad I'm looking out the window instead of at her, just watching my unsmoked cigarette burn down. But it's Audrey, and I like that she wants to know everything about me. Yeah, I say. She laughs. I look at her out of the corner of my eye. She's smiling, and she's still smoking, and she's not wearing her seatbelt. I gather my courage. Hey. You're only allowed to do one thing that's possible, that will possibly kill you at a time. She laughs again and she buckles her seatbelt. She's still wearing it when the sun starts to rise and she drives us to Dunkin' Donuts before class. Junior year, she leaves for an internship in San Francisco and I leave to spend a year studying at Oxford and it is before the age of Facebook or Skype so we share a journal that we send back and forth across the ocean. My handwriting is strangely tidy when I write that I keep dreaming about her visiting me. First, just a normal visit in Oxford. Then we're drinking with musicians from bands we like. Then she's visiting me while I'm hiding in Nazi territory. <laughs> I have a lot of questions for my 20-year-old Gentile subconscious still. But Audrey writes back from San Francisco while forest fires rage nearby. It's hard to discover anything without you next to me. Ash is falling into my face, and I couldn't care less because all I can think about is how I need to tell you immediately that Rufus Wainwright recorded his new album in London at somewhere called The Strange Room. But Audrey doesn't just follow my journal entries with a series of her own. She responds within my writing, underlining and annotating and writing the margins of what I've written. She thinks that drinking with rock star dreams sounds fun. The Nazi thing less so. I look at her neat all caps handwriting next to mine and I feel like someone's listening. You know, I write at the end of my entries. I know, she writes back. Towards the end of my year in England, she flies out to visit me and I'm so excited to show her the pieces of this life I've made. I drag her around town to every place I've been to that made me think, Audrey would like this or Audrey would hate this or I'm not sure what Audrey's opinion on this would be. We walk around holding hands all the time, both of us starved for human contact. She only drops my hand once, at night when we're passing a group of football hooligans. I don't want to be persecuted, she says. I laugh, like I understand. 
at night we cram into my little twin bed to sleep and I lie next to her with my arm tangled up with hers and I worry. I worry because I know I'd give her anything she wanted, anything, if she asked me. But she leaves and soon I'll have to go back to the States for senior year too. Oxford is starting to feel like home, but Audrey is already back in Boston, and she and I are going to live together, finally, for real. We will build a home out of wearing each other's shirts and listening to Franz Ferdinand in the mornings and always being on each other's side. But when I come back to school, something feels different. I don't know what it is until Audrey introduces me to Brett. Brett is a sophomore, an improviser, and a Great Dane puppy of a person who she could not possibly be serious about. <laughs> but he grins at her like he's smitten, and he laughs at all her jokes, and while I've been away, he's made his way into the circle of theater kids that are Audrey's next best friends to me. Now that I'm out with them, and Brett is there shouting his jokes alongside all the other actors, I, I feel very quiet. And then Audrey and Brett start having sex, which really gives him an edge. <laughs> On the way home from the bar one night, I sit in the back seat. Audrey and Brett are smoking and singing show tunes and laughing, and she's wearing her seatbelt. And I think, maybe I don't have to keep putting myself through this. Towards the end of the year, I get invited to a party thrown by people who I'm starting to realize are Audrey's friends, not mine, but I don't know if she's going because I'm trying to stop keeping track of her schedule. But I decide I'm gonna go anyway because I like to think I'm brave enough to go by myself. I walk into the mailroom that morning. Hey, Kirsten, I say, approaching a coworker who is cooler than me by a lot, but she's a few years younger, so she doesn't know it yet. <laughs> You wanna to go to a party tonight? She does, and we go, and we drink too much, and Kirsten sleeps over. You can take Audrey's bed, I say to Kirsten. There's no way she's coming back this late. She must be staying at Brett's. Kirsten nods and stumbles into Audrey's bed. A few hours later, I wake up to the soft sound of the bedroom door opening. Audrey's shadow stops by the, her side of the bed and when she sees another person in it. And even in the dark, I can feel it. She's not scared. She is so angry at me. She turns and stalks out of the bedroom, and I run after her. She climbs onto the living room couch. Audrey, I'm sorry. You can have my bed. I didn't think you'd be coming home. I'm so sorry. Her facial expression is completely blank. It's fine, she says. I'm just exhausted, and I want to sleep. She pulls a blanket over her head. A few days later, Audrey is still barely speaking to me, and I can't take it anymore. I'm standing in the kitchen. She's standing in the kitchen. I'm standing in the kitchen while she does dishes. Hey, I say, trying to sound casual while I'm holding a bedspread and a pillow, and I have a backpack slung over my shoulder. I'm totally cool with Brett staying over so much, but I'm just, like, not super comfortable staying over with him in the room, so I think I'm just going to go up to Kirsten's for a night or two, just try and stay out of the way. Audrey goes very still, letting the water run down the sink. She doesn't say anything. She doesn't look at me. Okay, she says finally. She starts mechanically doing dishes again. 
I hesitate and then I practically run out of our apartment. I drop my stuff off in Kirsten's place and I sit in her living room talking to her about Audrey. But I can't stop thinking about how all the color drained out of Audrey's face when I was downstairs and how I feel like I made some significant decision but I'm not really sure what it was or if it was a good one. Sorry, Kirsten, I say, interrupting my own monologue about my feelings. I'll be right back. I go downstairs. Audrey's still standing by the sink. She's crying very quietly. I feel sick, but also like a little bit proud that I'm still important enough to make her cry. She stops crying as soon as she hears me enter the room and I come up close behind her, but I don't touch her because I've never made someone else cry and I'm not really sure what the rules are. I'm supposed to be good at words. I'm about to complete a degree in words, but I don't understand what either of us is feeling and it doesn't add up and I'm, I'm not brave. I'm sorry, I say. It's just for tonight. I reach around her shoulders and hug her tight. She doesn't stiffen, doesn't bring her arms up to grab mine, doesn't anything. I let her go. I back up to the door. I love you, okay? She nods, but she doesn't turn around. I walk out the door, close it, and stand in the hall for a moment. I remember when Audrey and I first met. I remember how we became best friends. I remember hiding in her room from someone who had hurt me, someone who I used to be in love with. I want to tell her that this is different. I turn and I go back upstairs. This story was curated by Reshmi Hazar Rustabaki, directed by Jessica Scott, with sound design by Bridget Whitmer. The Second Story podcast is produced by Liv Oaf. Second Story is supported by the MacArthur Fund for Art and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, a city arts grant from the City of Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, the Chicago Community Trust, the Arts and Business Council of Chicago, the Illinois Arts Council Agency, the Arts Work Fund for Organizational Development, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Amanda Delheimer, and this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.